0: Let's pray. Just as much, God, as the choir has sung and we have heard and listened, and you have been glorified, we ask that you would continue to be glorified as we open your word together and read and listen. Help us to be attentive to you, to your spirit, and to your way. Give us uh, good ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have us know and the ways that you would have us grow. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word that they would be taken to heart. If my words deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. Amen. You know this by now, the thing about which Jesus spoke most often, and the thing about which he taught more than any other subject was the kingdom of God. Sometimes in Matthew's gospel, which is the most Jewish in perspective of the four gospels, the phrase the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of the heavens, is used as what scholars call a circumlocution. In other words, a way around saying something. And in this case, a way around saying the name or the word God, which Jews held in such high regard and reverence. And so Matthew sometimes used this circumlocution. Let's say that word together. Circumlocution. Absolutely. So when Matthew writes kingdom of heaven or kingdom of the heavens, What he means is what Jesus elsewhere in the rest of the New Testament and other writers mean by the kingdom of God. Regardless of what it's called though, we are interested in the kingdom of God. We want to know more about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the heavens. We want to experience, we want to go there, we want to be in that place, we want to live in that reality. The reality in which God is king and what God wills is done. And you know by now that this kingdom is not only a reality that exists out there one day in the distant future after we die when we are done with these physical earthly bodies. But according to Jesus, this reality or this kingdom is available to us now in this life here today On the earth. And that is a good bit of what we will be looking at this morning. As we continue with our series, uh, The Way of Jesus, we're going all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. reading now from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 12. Listen closely, this is the word of God. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, Jesus withdrew to Galilee Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, these words, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned, And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Not long before this, Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist and then Jesus spent a good bit of time in the desert where he was tested and so prepared for public ministry. And then Jesus went to or sort of retreats to Capernaum in the region of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali In order to fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah who would come, written in the book of Isaiah, the people living in darkness. And that's what that area was thought to be, that upper area of Galilee. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. They have seen it first. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then Matthew tells us that Jesus began his preaching ministry, and the substance of Jesus' preaching ministry, Matthew summarized with these words Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, or repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. In Jesus and with Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near. It is close by, it's, it's at hand, it's available. Because the king, in other words Jesus, has come near, so has this kingdom or this reality come near. The activity of God has come near, has shown up, has been revealed, is being revealed. And very much like John the Baptist preaching before him, Jesus didn't say repent in order that the kingdom of God might come. The first action according to Jesus, is not repentance. It would not be repentance. The coming or arrival or advent of God's kingdom did not depend on a person's repenting. Rather, the kingdom came first As the Old Testament prophets had declared, God had promised a king. God would send a king. And so the people had been waiting and waiting and waiting for a king who would save and a king who would rescue and a king who would lead them into salvation, but also a king who was salvation. And the great early church father, Origen, wrote, Jesus was and remains the kingdom in person. Jesus was the kingdom in person, in flesh, in humanity. And the kingdom has come near. And so Jesus says, repent. It was the first demand of his ministry to anyone and to everyone who would listen. But what did Jesus mean? What was he saying? What exactly was he telling people to do? What did Jesus mean by repent? If you're like me, repent feels like a very religious word. It conveys feelings of guilt and not good enough. And I'm trying to do what I'm supposed to do in order to make God happy or to get on God's good side or to avoid condemnation. I envision a fundamentalist pastor or evangelist speaking loudly in a service, maybe under a big tent, and yelling, repent 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 and sin no more a man who was inclined to lazy shortcuts in many areas of his life owned a house and that house needed to be painted and so he bought five gallons of paint a five-gallon bucket of paint though he suspected that five-gallon bucket wouldn't be enough to cover his whole house And to finish the job. And so he started thinning the paint right from the beginning. And as he went along, he kept thinning, adding water more and more. And as the job moved along, he was getting closer and closer to finishing. He added a little bit more water. And then finally the job was done. And then this big black rain cloud moves in over his house and lightning, thunder, and it starts raining, and much of the paint comes off, and then this voice from the heavens proclaimed, repaint, repaint, and thin no more. (laughs) Repaint, repaint, and thin no more. However one has heard and understood Jesus, Calling people to repentance, which he did from the beginning of his ministry and throughout. We must at least hear a couple of things. First, repentance is a precursor to or a prerequisite of salvation because repentance acknowledges the sin that separates a person from God. Repentance acknowledges that all is not right in one's life and that we need God. Moreover, as the Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff has stated, true repentance only exists where there is faith. True repentance only exists where there is faith. And wherever there is true faith that saves, wherever there is true faith that saves, there is also repentance. Always. The two go hand in hand always. But Jesus and the scriptures also tell another story about repentance, which is also true and important. Repentance opens the door to a life that we might call eternal today. The English word that translates the Hebrew word shuv for repentance means to turn or turn around or to go the other way physically. The English word Repent translates a Greek word in the New Testament, metanoia, that means to change the way a person has been thinking and acting. Repentance, Dale Bruner has written, is not merely a change of mind or regret. It is a complete change of life direction, enabled by the word of the innate invading kingdom. And Elaine O'Rourke has written that to repent involves rethinking one's strategy for living, now that the option of the kingdom is at hand. Repentance may involve turning from a life of crime, or from using foul language, or texting while driving, or cheering for the raiders, or parking (laughs) on the parking lines in the parking lot instead of between them, or listening to country music, but... But repentance does not necessarily involve or always involve such heinous sins. In the 11th chapter of the book of Acts, Jesus' disciple Peter recounts how he had gone into the home of a Gentile following the Spirit's leading and how he had preached the gospel there to the Gentiles and how because of that they changed their minds and how they thought or understood the things of God. And they thought differently, which meant they lived differently, which brought about change in their lives, in their person, in their hearts, in all of them. In Peter's own words from verse 18, When the Gentiles heard my explanation about God loving all people, they had no further objections and they praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to Life. And that's what God wants for people, all people, Jews, Gentiles, and everyone else. God wants us to have life in Him, life in His kingdom, life that can be described as abundant, life that is eternal, life in which people know that God loves them, life in which people are empowered to love one another life in his kingdom or in his reign or his reality where what he wills comes about and is done because the kingdom is at hand and because we can and so while jesus calls people to repent and his call to repent may be heard as unattractive or unappealing or overly religious or unpleasant or drudgery or guilt-inducing It is actually exactly the opposite of that, and is really this gracious invitation and the root or the route into what the scriptures and Jesus called life. Life in the kingdom, life in a reality and a kingdom of love. God wants us to be free. Of all the stuff, as the author of the book of Hebrews says, that so easily entangles. The sin that so easily entangles our lives, our coming and going, our hearts and our minds. God wants us to be free of all of that. Imagine Jesus going into Capernaum not as a finger-waving evangelist or fundamentalist or a wet blanket on people's party, but instead as the author of life, the smartest man who ever lived, and the one who knows better than anyone else. How a person can live with joy and peace and exuberance and abundance. How a person can live with the maximum hope and the maximum delight in one's life. How a person can avoid being dragged into the abyss and into anxiety and dysfunction and unhappiness and selfish greed. How a person can avoid living smugly and ungenerously and cheaply. How a person can be filled with compassion and mercy. How a person can experience rest. Jesus knows all these things. Sin from which Jesus hopes to free or liberate us by calling us to repentance and making that possible. Sin is its own punishment, devouring a person, devouring us from the inside. The things that Jesus calls us to repent of or to repent from are the things that kill our bodies and that kill our souls and that kill our spirits and that kill our relationships. On Wednesday, former Senator Alan Simpson said at former President George H.W. Bush's memorial service, hatred corrodes the container it's carried in. Sin is its own punishment. And Jesus wants to free us from all of that. And he has done that by forgiving us. But he's also done that and does that by calling us to repentance to a new way of thinking, according to his kingdom. And so Jesus says to change one mind and change one's attitude and change one's words and change one's actions. Change the whole direction or trajectory of one's life so that you may live in this kingdom of love. And so the, his demand and his call, repent, all of a sudden takes on these new images. And yet we still consider repent to be an unappealing word or idea, even as it may be the doorway for us to a better marriage or greater integrity or inner peace or physical health or increasing maturity. The prolific Bible teacher Derek Prince once wrote these words, I've spent countless hours counseling Christians with problems and I've come to the conclusion that there are limits to what one can be accomplished, to what what can be accomplished by counseling. I would say at least 50% of most Christians' problems are due to the fact that they have not repented of any number of variety of things. I suggest that if you're struggling with problems in your Christian experience, ask yourself if you have truly repented Turn totally from everything displeasing to God and yield yourself to Him in unconditional surrender. I think He's right. Yep. And so here are a few steps for whatever they're worth that may be helpful as we seek to follow Jesus, obey Jesus, live in His way, practice what He told His students to do. First, first, is to know the holy God who created us, but more than that, the holy God who loves us. We do not repent in order that God might love us, but because God already loves us, and he has exhibited that in the coming and the bursting forth and the inaugurating, the ushering in of this kingdom. And so because God loves us, we can be honest about ourselves and honest with him. Gerald May wrote, Honesty before God requires the most fundamental risk of faith we can take, the risk that God is good and that God does love us unconditionally. It is taking this risk that, in taking this risk, that we rediscover our dignity. To bring the truth of ourselves just as we are to God, just as God is, is the most dignified thing that we can do in this life. Deborah Newman has written, when we won't let ourselves be held in the midst of our messes by God who loves us and made us, we miss the unspeakable joy of knowing that we are truly his beloved. And so the first thing is to know the holy God who made us and to know the holy God who loves us and will love us, regardless of our repenting. And yet he calls us to that in love. Second is to recognize and acknowledge that something in our lives or in our thinking or in our hearts or about our behavior is either not consistent with the kingdom of God or is not given over to God for his purposes and his glory and our faithfulness and fruitfulness and joy and to how he has made us. To acknowledge, to recognize that we have not lived into the kingdom that he has made available to us and to recognize and to acknowledge our need for change. And the second step, I don't know if it's bigger or smaller than the first step, but for many of us, we could do well to learn from the folks in the 12-step programs that it would be good to take an inventory of our entire lives And ask where we need to change, even if they're not in religious ways. To ask what needs to change about us, about our attitudes, about our spirits, about our lives. Third is to experience and to express sorrow for whatever one has done or whatever one is doing or whatever is going on in one's life or one's heart, whatever has been going on. Of course, sorrow itself is not the goal. And sorrow is different than repentance. Sorrow is different than repentance and it is not the goal. But sorrow, as Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, when it leads to repentance, when it leads to repentance, has much value indeed. Similarly, confessing our sin to God, to a priest, to one another, has value but is different than repentance. It may lead to repentance, and only when it does is it really, truly cathartic and hopeful. Fourth is to decide, to truly decide and commit to the reality that something is going to be different. The third question we ask a person who is seeking to be baptized or who has presented a young child for baptism is, do you turn from sin and everything that keeps you at a distance from God And do you turn to God relying on his grace in Jesus? This deciding and this turning is really important. Someone once said that it's much easier to repent of sins that we have committed than it is to repent of those that we intend to continue to commit. We must decide that we are done with a thing, done with sin, done with a behavior, done with an attitude. And then we ask for God's help. We ask for God's help because we know how we are. We know how we are with change, we know how we are with staying in change and staying the course. And again, from the folks at the 12 steps, next is to make amends when necessary as a way of expressing our seriousness about repenting, to make amends when necessary and helpful. And then finally last is to ask for the help of others. There is nothing quite as helpful in addition to asking God and to praying than to say to a brother or sister or to your small group or to a close friend or a spouse, I need help with this. I am deciding today to repent in this way and to have someone hold you accountable, not for the sake of guilt, but for the sake of encouragement. Repenting is hard. My dad uh, smoked cigarettes and he said quitting smoking cigarettes is the easiest thing a person can do. I've done it hundreds of times. And he was right. But we can repent. And we can, through that, enter the kingdom that is available to us and around us. And that has come to us in Jesus. Think back over the curriculum that we've talked about and studied and committed ourselves to over the last 14 weeks. Do you need to repent in any of the ways that we have talked about according to our curriculum? In loving God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength, in loving your neighbor as you love yourself, in loving your enemy, do you need to repent in the ways that you do or do not immerse yourself in God's word? In the way that you call attention to your own good deeds in order to have the praise of other people? Does a change of direction need to happen in the ways that you do or do not pray or fast or give? All of these things leading to us entering into God's kingdom in fuller ways to our joy. In the ways that you Sabbath, in the ways that you forgive or have not forgiven other people. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God that we so long for and talk about and yearn for is available and is around us. Repent for the kingdom of the heavens is near. Let's pray. God, we confess our unrepentance we confess that at times we have expected or hoped that apart from our willful repentance, we might experience transformation, even though you called your students and your apprentices and all people to this turning around and redirection of our whole lives and each part of our lives. We confess that we have been slow to that for a variety of reasons including habit and our intransience and our unwillingness to let go of certain things in which we've found security help us to find our security in you our hope in you our joy in you help us to trust you grow in us faith and a hunger for your kingdom we thank you for your mercy We thank you for your tenderness, we thank you for loving us before we loved you, and apart from our love for you. We thank you for your goodness, exhibited most clearly and powerfully in the giving of your Son, that we might have life and life in his name. And in his name, we praise and honor you, amen.